Thank you very much. Um, I don't know what the score was. When I left the house, it was 10-6 Boston. <laughs> uh, uh, Buffalo, rather. Boston won the basketball game. <laughs> um, one of the most curious parts of American culture is the relationship between drinking and writing, something that I knew a lot about in my own life and that I think anybody who is interested in writing has heard about in an almost legendary mythic way for many years. Just the giant names of our culture, of our writing, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, um, evoke ruin to some extent. Fitzgerald at 44 died before he ever got to finish the last book of his life and before he got old enough to write his masterpieces. Hemingway, the last 20 years of his life as a writer and on the evidence of his posthumous publication had pretty much blurred his talent, that great, beautiful, sharp, lyrical talent of his youth with a lot of years of alcohol. Faulkner, after three or four amazing books proving that he was the great genius of American literature, began to decline and lived that long decline, half stupefied on alcohol. I'm not here to, to make sermons on the mount about what people should or should not do with their lives, but what I regret about people like those giants of literature is what we never got from them. The examples of so many others, particularly Americans, Eugene O'Neill and O. Henry, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, Jack London and Jack Kerouac, Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams, John Cheever and Delmore Schwartz, Dorothy Parker, Stephen Crane, Robert Lowell. The list could be extended probably for another five minutes. Uh, it is even wider when you bring in people who are not Americans. I think of two in particular whose, the distortion of whose talent by alcohol has left us with only one or two works instead of 50. Malcolm Lowry, um, who wrote Under the Volcano, one of the greatest books about alcoholism, uh, never finished anything else. The great Irish writer, Flann O'Brien, who, in my opinion, was the, as good as Joyce and Yeats, or could have been, ended up with one really, truly complete novel, That Swim Two Birds, and some fragmentary ones, and left the best of the rest of them in newspapers and saloons. I don't mean to say that alcoholism is something unique to writers, by the way. Uh, in my own life, I've met alcoholic seafarers and alcoholic bakers and alcoholic cops and alcoholic lawyers. We don't know as much about them because they don't write about it. Uh, they live their lives and, and do the damage uh, to other people that usually goes with the habit and then they're gone. But I've thought a lot about it because of this book that I've written, I've, which I worked on for a couple of years trying to figure it out in myself because it was a problem with me until 20 years ago when I stopped. And it certainly had taken the lives of some of my friends. 
good writers who never got to really write the work I think they should have done. And I wondered a lot about it and began to think that one of the problems really with writers in particular is that writers are usually made up of two conflicting aspects in their personalities, the shy and the exhibitionistic. Nora Ephron once said to me uh, that the writer is the guy who thinks of the good line on the way home from the party. And I think that's true. I think writers are essentially, when they're young, um, people who stand back and try to figure it out and say, what is this about? They're too shy maybe to utter what they, was really on their minds. But they go home and on the way home they're thinking about what they would have said had they had a second draft, had they had a first draft. What would they have done if they had it to do over again? I think there's a lot of that that happens in writers that helps to form the instinct, particularly for fiction, that comes from wishing you had a second chance at it. At the same time, many of those people who are very shy, and most of the alcoholics that I've known in my life were essentially shy people who got to be open under the influence of drinking. Uh, on the other hand, there's an exhibitionism attached to it. The act of writing itself and presenting it to another, that asking for it to be published, is putting on a little bit of a show. The writer wants some approval. He wants to say, look how witty I am, or smart, or bright, or knowing, or intelligent, or whatever. There is an exhibition going on. There is a performance there that, in its own way, is the same instinct that guides musicians or actors or directors to go in and say, here it is, this is me, I exist. And I think what I saw, a lot of what I saw in my days in the drinking life was the both stages at the same time, early and late, uh, to the point where finally the exhibitionism would be over and a form of numbness and anesthesia would set in uh, that began to cut into and erode the basic decency of a lot of good people, men and women. Writers also have, I think, another problem, which is they, they, from the earliest moments of their ambition, begin to train their awareness. They want to see everything. They want to look and say, that man is doing this, and therefore it tells me that. They are looking at, at the world in a way that many of us maybe don't look. And there's a point, I suppose, where there's too much awareness, where you begin to say, I can't stand this, it's too much of this. Let me obliterate this stuff. It's like having insomnia. I can't stay awake all the time. And you begin to use alcohol as a kind of sedative to bring yourself down from that level of awareness. Um, and the writer then begins to lose something in that process. Uh, Joan Didion says somewhere that writers are always betraying someone they can't betray anybody, though, if they don't remember. And one of the things I discovered in my, the writing of my own book was that I remembered almost everything about the summer I was 11 and almost nothing about the winter I was 31. And the reason was I was not drinking when I was 11. So that a lot of writers, I think Fitzgerald is a good example of it, I think Hemingway to a, in a different way, at a certain point begin to obliterate memory they begin to 
experience things as almost celebrities of writing rather than those people that stand back and look and try to absorb and understand and make sense of the world, they begin to obliterate it. And what they end up doing then is they write about what it was when they were young because they can remember that and almost nothing about it, what, it, what it is now. Fitzgerald's, one of his most quoted lines is that there are no second life, uh, no second acts in American lives. And what I think he really must have meant by that was that there are no third acts in American lives because so many people, particularly writers, don't get through the second act. They can't remember that second act and therefore the third act, which in a great writer or a great uh, artist of any kind would happen when he or she is older never takes place. There is nothing left of the instrument that propelled people into what they do when they were young. Those things that, that Yeats calls the things that hurt you into art. On the other hand, writing, when, you're, when you are young, drinking has enormous benefits, and I think that's the seductive part of it, the, the power that must be acknowledged once it's, it's trying to be figured out. Um, you don't know that it's attacking memory. What it is is loosening you up. It's allowing other people to be loosened, loose, uh, loose enough to explain to some extent their lives, what they're afraid of, what, they're, what they desire, what it is they want in this world. Those are the things that we learn as writers and as human beings when there are those magical evenings where everything seems to go right and there's no hangover in the morning. There are very few of those. The impulse to write, which contains other factors, obviously, than exhibitionism, um, the impulse to write sometimes comes from exactly the things that you won't, don't want to face in bars. Uh, very good writers write to get rid of things. They don't want to think about them anymore, so they write them, focus them, put them on paper, make them objective in some way, and get rid of them. Faulkner, who knew more about this than anybody, uh, said that the best stories are the ones that we're most thoroughly ashamed of. And I know exactly what he means by that. And the good writer at least must stay as sensitive and aware about himself in society to understand that there's shame attached to some actions. If in the process of a lot of drinking, people are constantly forgiving themselves for no, whatever outrageous act, they're not gonna have even that shame that allows you to understand that what happened was worth recording and maybe passing on to somebody else. The other thing I think that attacks writers and makes it uh, difficult for them to, to separate the way they're living their lives and, and the way they're working on their work is that fiction itself is basically a lie. I think the fiction writer who is sitting in a room and creating this elaborate lie over the period of a year or two years or five years or whatever is creating out of memory of the knowable, of the imagined, a piece of work that he hopes to pass to, other, to others that is not factual but that is truer in its lying than the truth. I think that's true of, of some of the greatest writers that I know, Andrei Bailey, from the Russian writer, Turgenev. These were not 
writers who sat down and did a kind of reporting job on their friends. They looked at what was going on and imagined the rest. And the act of imagination was, I think, the thing that was at the heart of their genius. But it's also the kind of thing that can give a writer a sense that he no longer knows what is real in the world. Newspaper men have a different problem because the newspaper man and the alcoholic both have in common, in, in common, and often they're the same thing, a need for instant gratification. The newspaper man knows that if he works very hard from 10 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he'll have a piece in the paper the next day or even that night. He can take it and hold it in his hands. He doesn't have to wait for um, two years to go by and then another eight months while the thing is designed and set in type and published and criticized and all that. This instant gratification that comes from the to the journalist that doesn't come to very many other writers. The poet might do a poem on a Monday and it'll be you know 300 Mondays before it gets published. The newspaper man doesn't have that, so I don't think it's an accident that newspapers and city rooms had attracted over the years so many people who had trouble with alcohol. To begin, the, the other aspect of journalism that attracts the, the person with a drinking problem is that journalism's almost always about somebody else. It's not about yourself. You can go in and deal with the problems of other people and in, those, in a way, those problems are a relief to you. In the same sense that the homeless alcoholic uh, in, in a doorway with his bottle of Thunderbird is in fact a great comfort to the guy standing in the bar, because the guy in the bar can say, um, I'm not an alcoholic, I function, I go to work, I don't have the problem. He's an alcoholic, and point at the guy in the doorway. But I think that kind of level of self-deception, which can affect ordinary, human beings is also heightened in many ways in writers. And I think it's affected our literature in a very crucial way. There's been an enormous argument, and I'm very aware of this because I'm Irish American, about the effect of genes on people, the genetic theory of alcoholism. There seem to be studies that show that about 40% of people that we call alcoholics uh, have a genetic strain of some kind that goes back through families. Um, I think that sounds right in the, my experience with people, but I don't think it explains everything. I think certainly environment has an enormous amount to do with it. When I was growing up in Brooklyn, um, my entire neighborhood was dysfunctional by the standards that people now apply uh, to just families. Everybody drank. The, the bars were the, were the social clubs. They were the employment agencies. They were the places where the working class poor could go in and feel as if they had accomplished something on a Friday night or a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning. They were not you know, places where you just drowned your sorrows. People, particularly at the end of World War II, people in, in neighborhoods like that had this enormous sense of optimism of which drinking was an aspect of it. Drinking was there, it enhanced it, it made you feel you could do anything, and a lot of those people did do a lot more than anybody ever expected them to do. But I think environment in that case probably had a big influence on a lot of people who ordinarily would not have been drinkers. I think that 
other factors come into it. I think social engineering um, can have the opposite effect of what it's intended to. And the great example in our country was prohibition. I think prohibition probably created more alcoholics than it cured. It made it a social requirement for people to drink rather than allow a bunch of blue noses to tell you what to do. It certainly affected the generation just before me because a lot of the jargon and the feeling of uh, social independence, of political independence in a way, that was rooted in prohibition was still around when I was a young man. Uh, it came to us in peculiar ways. We saw it from our fathers and their friends. But I think we also got a lot of the same message through a number of other things. Movies, for example. I think it was no accident that almost every cowboy was a loner, and the only social life he ever had was in a saloon. There was nowhere else. You didn't see John Wayne go to the library. He didn't, you know, it was impossible to imagine even Hopalong Cassie, the only guy that drank milk, coming to the 92nd Street Y. <laughs> Um, but even the good movies, I mean, if you think of movies like Casablanca, the hero of the movie owns a bar. He stands there and when he has to nurse his broken heart about Ingrid Bergman, he sits there and drinks whiskey and asks the piano player to please play it. You played it for her, you can play it for me. And they did. So that I think the, the lessons that drinking was in some ways consolation, armor, uh, masculine, the word macho didn't exist at the time, but certainly the idea that somehow you would be a man by, by drinking was built into a lot of us. It's built into the society right now, and if Mitterrand comes to the White House next week, you know that everybody will sit at a big table, and before it begins, they will put some wine in a glass, and everybody will have a toast. If they laid a great big Jamaican spliff on everybody's uh, plate and said, let's light up, uh, they'd think this was a society in a lot of trouble. We build these things into ourselves often without any awareness about them. Um, so I think there's, there's the social and cultural things that went along with them. Uh, I know that in my own life, one of the things that I didn't realize until I began to write this book was that there were other places where this came from. I was a huge comic book fan when I was a kid. And virtually every hero in the comic books during the war had a magic potion that was invented in some laboratory, and only one guy got it. Steve Rogers belted this thing down and ended up as Captain America. Somebody else took whatever magic potion it was and ended up as the Blue Beetle. Somebody else became Submariner. There were so many different magic potions around, which the formula for which was always destroyed in the act of throwing this down your neck. But they gave, they built into the uh, into us without any consciousness on the part, by the way, of the cartoonists or the guys writing the comic books. But they built in this notion that somehow there was a chemical, a magic act of some kind that could transform you physically, morally, ethically. Everything was implied by those kinds of standards that were built into the sort of popular culture of this country. Very much different from what I think would have been uh, passed on to people in Italy or in other parts of the world. It was certainly passed on here. The other great part of it I think that has to be explored and I think 
the, the biographies of writers don't ever quite get to this, is that I think the, the core of a lot of it has to do with human sexuality. I think human sexuality and the act of writing have, have certain parallels. There's desire and then there's performance. You want to do something, you often can't do it. Be in some cases because you simply don't have the talent, you don't have the ability to apply the seat of the pants to the seat of the chair and just work it through. But I think there were a lot of writers for whom the confusion of sexuality, and, and it goes, this I think applies to almost everybody from Joyce to, to um, Delmar Schwartz to other, you know, to a whole variety, a whole range of people was postponed by the act of drinking. And I think the, the drinking that was used in order to postpone the dealing with sexuality became a habit that ended up slopping over and postponing dealing with literature, dealing with the work. There was always another day that you could put this off. You could always go wandering away from it and try to reimagine it and come back to it later. I think the core of, of thinking about individual sexuality, particularly in years when it was not as easy as it later became, has to, and, and particularly now with the scourge of AIDS everywhere, I think it's probably doing another thing to the way people think about literature, in which sexuality has so much danger attached to it uh, that they could, it could be altering the way we write things. Uh, I think we'll have to wait a year, a couple of years be, in order to be able to stand back enough to look at it that way, but I'm sure that it is affecting us in some crucial way. For all of that, I think one of the worst myths of all of it that, that begins to affect writers is when they have long habit, um, they begin to think that they, there's no way that they can function without drinking because it would affect their creativity. There's a mixing of the wells of creativity with, with the use of the magic potion. I think that can be refuted by the lives of many people. Eugene O'Neill is the classic example. O'Neill stopped when he stopped drinking, who was a really stone alcoholic, an absinthe head, um, stopped when he was 37 and went on to write three of his greatest plays, including the single greatest play ever written about uh, the drinking life, and that's The Iceman Cometh. He also wrote Long Day's Journey, and he wrote uh, Moon for the Misbegotten, and a bunch of plays that he destroyed, unfortunately, but uh, those three plays, I think, were O'Neill working at the very top of his understanding of human, human beings, and they were all done sober. He stayed uh, with a couple of outbreaks here and there, he stayed sober for the next 28 years of his life. He was a great example of it. I think in our own day, we have people like Raymond Carver, who's, who died too young, but whose best work was all done after he stopped, because he could see it clearly. He could see what was oratory and rhetoric and what was really the most hard, concrete thing he was capable of doing. Uh, a popular writer who I think is also a, a, a popular artist, Elmore Leonard, is another guy who just said, you know, that's it, it's time for me to write what I was supposed to write, and for the last 10 years has written some of the most extraordinary uh, novels about crime and criminals that we've ever had in this country. I think the, 
those of us who know friends who have been damaged by this know that they always work better without it. Uh, just as Charlie Parker would have worked better without heroin. Uh, that Miles Davis had his worst seasons when he was a heroin addict. That anything that gets in the way of consciousness, that destroys consciousness, that begins to make it feel as if you're underwater listening to an artist or, or hearing a writer barely able to express himself, I think anything that gets in the way of that is the enemy of art. I don't believe in, in this whole notion that the, art, the artist is some magic act and that he has to triumph over adversity in order to do it. I don't believe it. Um, I think the best artists also live pretty long uh, and that one of the things we've had to suffer with in the United States is the myth of the, the self-destructive artist, James Dean or Jackson Pollock or whoever it might be who has basically rubbed himself out with bad habits. I'm convinced that Tennessee Williams would have had a, a, a glorious final 20 years if he had been not getting himself whacked out in Key West on whiskey and, and had been sitting clear-eyed thinking about his life and thinking about his work. I think the example of Truman Capote is another one where it became longer and longer and longer um, between books and between work and a sort of tough, exquisite talent was turned into interview magazine garrulousness. I think there's a great examples of other people like that who have just simply harmed themselves with this thing. So I, in my own life, and I'm talking about this only because this book made me think a lot about it and because I walked away from it a long time ago, um, people have asked me about it a lot. And I, I've always said that you can't separate the, the the problem from the life, whether you're a writer or not, if you're gonna to try to find your way out of the forest, the one way you have to do that is to retrace your steps. You have to say, I must have taken a left at the pond or something. Let me go back and see if I can find that big rock. You have to understand how it began in order to get away from it and to escape it. I think that is not often done enough by ordinary citizens and was done, I think, with great damage and great um, uh, loss to all the rest of us by generation after generation of writers. And it, it, by the way, doesn't include just Americans. I mean, I mentioned Lowry and Flynn O'Brien. I could have mentioned Baudelaire and Rambeau. I could have mentioned Camus. All, uh, all kinds of writers have had this problem. I think now that for the first time as a literature is developing, as people are looking at it in a way that looks at it not as an isolated phenomenon, not saying, well, all writers are like bohemians. Uh, I think all of us are beginning to look at these things because what society does with writers is it essentially hires them to remember for us. If we end up with losing the best writers that we have, we're losing a piece of our own collective memory. We're getting a society that will end up looking like uh, reports from the Commerce Department instead of, a, instead of a society in which the artists can celebrate and point out and make us feel something about the events through which we have lived. I don't think you can look at 
the 40s or the 50s or the 60s without looking at great writers, and I don't think we should be looking at the 90s only by trying to rerun 60 minutes. I think we have to get writers to continue to do the work that writers are supposed to do, which is to remember. Um, anything, and alcohol is one of the great enemies of memory, anything that gets in the way, whether it's alcohol or other drugs, uh, I think we have to pray that people learn early and not too late that it's time to do it. Uh, Mickey Mantle was in the news in the last couple of days, and I, I was struck by how there was a kind of implied sense in some of the stories that Mickey Mantle had hit bottom. And what I felt about those stories when I got the news, and I, again, I'm not a crusader for this, I'll never visit a street corner and do a Billy Sunday, that people should have applauded Mantle for doing what he did. Even at 62, he said, I have essentially, I have one ambition, to know what happens from 62 to 63. He might have lost everything in the middle, and he had a glorious youth, but the decision to go and look at the world now for a guy like Mantle, who is not a writer, who is not a painter, whose great art is long behind him, his great art of public performance, if that's the way to say it, I guess, uh, that he would decide to choose life over the slow, grinding, numbing anesthesia um, of the drinking life, I think is something we should all applaud. Um, with that as a beginning, I'd love to hear from you and see if we can discuss this a little more. Thank you. Yes, sir. Anything you want, except the score in the game, which I still don't know. I supported Dinkins this time, too. I, I, I don't think you... Uh, who did I su I supported Dinkins four years ago. Who did I support this time, and how do I rate Dinkins, uh, Giuliani's first 30 days? Um, I, uh, the, the, the answer the first part, <laughs> the first part, I supported Dinkins. I, I thought it was to have a, a Democratic president, a Democratic governor, a Democratic city council, and a Democratic uh, state assembly and elect a Republican was like a typical act of New York suicide. <laughs> but it's done, and I think everybody, including me, wishes Giuliani well. I'd like to see him get done what has to be done. A lot of that is beyond him or any other mayor, obviously. If you've got a city where 70% of the budget is mandated by state and federal law, it's very difficult for any mayor to decide how to do it. I hope he doesn't degenerate into, into a kind of a walking talk show host running against Al Sharpton. You know, he should really be digging into the most crucial thing facing us, which is the budget, and trying to figure out how to make that happen. I'd rather see him running against the school custodians than against Al Sharpton. Yes, sir. Do I have a wide and varied audience do I ever expect to address the problem of black racism? I, in fact, have addressed it for many years. I, I uh, went in the New York Post in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, I made very clear that I thought the Black Panthers were a fake, that a lot of what was being claimed was a fake. 
I wrote a 10,000-word piece in Esquire four years ago about the black underclass and the consequences of that. Uh, I've written columns uh, before saying that the diversion of the debate into arguments over civil rights when, in fact, people are being slaughtered in East New York and Brownsville was, you know, people being off the mark. I'm very encouraged to see that Jesse Jackson and Sharpton and other people are addressing the problem of black-on-black -black crime at last, in the last year, that they realize they've gone past the old civil rights thing and it has to be dealt with in a different way. I'm very encouraged by that and I don't think it's some kind of sham. Yes, sir? <laughs> Did everybody hear that? Yeah. I, after the first year, the first year was very difficult because I was reestablishing a, a different set of habits. Um, after, after the first year, there was, was, there was no temptation to go back to that. It was like that game was over. Uh, but that doesn't mean that on a day, for example, when it begins to snow about four o'clock in the afternoon, that I don't remember those afternoons at the lion's head, seeing the snow and saying, God does not want me to go home tonight, and sitting there and having some of the best times I ever had in my life. And I think that's not to endorse that stuff, but to acknowledge that it has power, that life can give you consolation, it can give you companionship if you're lonely, it can give, everything is forgiven in the bar. And unless that is understood, the, the, the argument for or against can't fully be um, uh, grasped. You have to understand that that has tremendous power. And I miss a lot of, uh, sometimes I miss that, that, that part of it, the social part of it. But the drink, I don't, after, a, after the first year, which was pretty tough, I never again even, it, it was hard to imagine even doing it, and don't miss it at all. Yes, ma'am. Right. The, 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 could you hear that at all? The, the question was that a lot of people, when they give up, drinking talk about a spiritual awakening and there's nothing either in my remarks tonight or in, in fact in my book that acknowledges that that's part of the process. And the, the reason is that I'm probably the most secular human being I can think of and I, I have tried to say since I was a young kid in Catholic high school and when I was an altar boy saying, you know, I don't really believe this. What am I, what am I doing this for? <laughs> Uh, and and I, I think it might be a failing in me, but I just never had the, either the imagination or the capacity to have that. So, uh, I, and I understand, for example, the people that don't go to AA because it does have a religious component, most of it. I think there's now like AA for atheists and stuff too. Uh, I think it's 11 steps or something. <laughs> uh, 
I, and by the way, I, I think AA has done more for Americans than any program, government or non-government, that I can think of, uh, more good for human beings than any other single thing, although I didn't use it, and I have other friends uh, who didn't either, but I have friends who did. And uh, it's, it's just, I, the religious thing, I just can't get it. I, 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 you know, I keep trying, I said, God, and I love, you know, if somebody started shooting Catholics or Jews, I'd say, stop that. I'm, I am Spartacus, you know? Um, but I, it's, it's, I can't get it, I don't get it. If, um, and I, I'm sure it's some awful failing on my part, which I'll pay for sometime or another. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Right. Right. I, I have thought of, have I, I only listed one woman in that list of writers that I mentioned, and that was Dorothy Parker. Had I thought about women in alcoholism, and I, I have, and I think we have, you know, there are obviously cases through the, through the years and that we don't know about because it was much more difficult for women to be public drunks. It was dangerous to be a woman and be drunk in a lot of the places that I used to go to anyway. <laughs> uh, there was, there was, there's no long line of that, whereas men, they would applaud. You say, boy, he can really hold his liquor and all that. You very seldom said that about Catherine Ann Porter, you know, um, and who was, by the way, didn't like drinking and hated Hart Crane because he ruined her life when she was young in Mexico. Um, I, I think it is a subject because there's almost no literature on it. I, I mean, and I was curious about it, why that subject had not been developed more, particularly now when, you know, there's a kind of feminist press that publishes everything, you know, famous left-handed feminists of the 17th century, you know. I mean, everything is being published now by the university presses, but there is no book that I'm aware of about women and drinking, and I, I wish there were. I think it would be a very good book for someone to do. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> is Abe here? Anyway. <laughs> I mean, it was a good thing I wasn't drinking when that was going on. <laughs> One of us would have been dead. Um, the time, the, the process that we all went through down at the Post, and I was only part of a process involving everybody else, was the most exhilarating thing that I think that had happened to me in the newspaper business, because uh, for as much outrageous fun that was going on, it was about serious issues, you know, what, what actually can be done with a newspaper, and what should be done with a newspaper. Newspapers are not just parking lots. They're not just uh, Miami Beach hotels. They're p p uh, specific kinds of institutions in a city like New York. And the Post itself, which had given me life when I was a boy, was, was like my old neighborhood in a way. So it was worth whatever struggle went on, I think. And it was, uh, in a way, we kept, uh, in a way we were successful because we kept it alive. It is alive today. You might not like the, the shape that it's in right now, but at least it has a heartbeat. 
And as long as it's alive, it has within its own, uh, it has the power to be transformed into something else. Uh, if, it, if it had died, if it had joined the World Telegram and the Journal of American and the Herald Tribune and the Brooklyn Eagle and the Bronx Home News, all those newspapers that were alive when I was a boy and aren't even here anymore, um, then there we would have failed. Keeping it alive, I think, was a triumph. Um, I don't like it particularly right now. Uh, there's some good people down there. I like the editor, Ken Chandler, a good fellow, Kalich, who and the other people who were involved in the process. But I hated what happened in the, in the union struggle, you know? The, the guild went out on strike, the guild lost, and the way we always ran union battles in America was somebody wins and somebody loses, and when it's over, you hug each other and go back to work. Here what happened is the union lost, and then they got punished on top of it, so that there are still 150, at least, people who have never been hired back. There are people who gave their lives to that newspaper who will have no pensions and no retirement. Uh, there's people like my friend Marty Burden uh, who worked there from the, I think he got there six months after he came back from the Battle of the Bulge and worked all the way through it and he died last year and his wife is not gonna get a pension. Uh, I, I think that's criminal in a world where the same company is going to pay John Madden $6 million a year to work 14 weekends. I think there ought to be something done about that. And I think Rupert Murdoch, if he remembered his own beginnings as a newspaper man, would be a little kinder to the people that have given their lives to an institution like the Post. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm going to do some work for the Daily News, and then we'll see what happens, you know, over there. It's the, we'll see. <laughs> um, I've been working so hard on this book, and then that took a lot of energy, and I'm doing some work for Esquire, too, but it's not the same as newspapers, obviously, but we'll see. I'll, I should know within the next month or so what I'm going to do. Yes, sir. How did you know I had recent impressions of my time? Well, I Right. Um, I went out to see Mike Tyson. I, I had been talking to Tyson. I knew, t I should start at the beginning. I, I first met Tyson when he was about 15 or 16 years old. Uh, and I met him because one of my closest friends is Jose Torres, who was a Customato fighter, and I knew Customato was the manager who later ended up being the sort of surrogate father and manager of Mike Tyson. So I first saw him when, I was when he was 15 and watched him sort of grow up and become this ferocious fighter at the age of 20, 21. Um, and I was sorry, I grieved for what happened to him when he got in trouble in Indianapolis. But I've been talking to him at length on the phone for weeks now and then went out to see him just before Christmas. And I have to tell you, it's one of the, I, I don't think he should be in jail for reasons that are not worth going into right now, but the, I wasn't there to discuss the case. I wanted to know how he was doing time. And he'd already done 20, 21 months of this sentence. He has another 15 months to go. And it was 
it was kind of thrilling and encouraging in a way because he has really set out to educate himself. He is reading everything. He had, and I don't mean just to educate yourself to get a GED, but he is reading and quoting everything from Voltaire to Machiavelli to Dumas to Hemingway to, uh, it was the most astonishing display and, and I've been listening to it. I mean, he's into the history of American crime, for example which he says, do you know that Arnold Rothstein was the model for Maya Wolsheim in The Great Gatsby? I said, yes, I know that. He said, he must have been big, man. And so he's talking and, and finding out, in a way, using the time that he's doing in prison to do something more than get stronger and harder and tougher to come out and try to find some old lady to throw off a bridge. He's really, and I, I think, in a way can be an enormous example to some of these screwed up kids that are coming out of the same streets he came out of in Brownsville and East New York. Um, the, the, the process of prison, obviously, should be one that, that encourages that among young guys who have never properly educated or never properly educated themselves. And Tyson is very aware that there's a distinction that you can't be handed an education. You have to go and get it. So he is going to get it. And, you know, I've, I've written a long piece about this for Esquire. will be out next month. And I, I hate to do violence to the, the, some of the subtlety that goes on with Tyson and what, what he's into, but, but that's basically where he is right now. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an encouraging, uh, exciting thing because of what he can say when he gets out. Not to us, what he can say to those lost kids that are ruining their lives as we speak here. I think he could be a very, he was not in on a pass, that kid, and he's, if he's doing this, I think he can be an example to a lot of kids that might be more powerful than anything anybody here could say to them. Yes, sir? Um, no, I, 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 we, we got a tremendous amount of mail about it. I got a lot of angry... Oh, I'm sorry. I thought because he was back there you could hear it. I had written a piece on the homeless for New York Magazine last uh, September, I guess it appeared. Has anybody taken me up on the proposals that were in there? Uh, the, the short answer is no, uh, because I think there's a lot of things that have to be done first, but. Um, the, the, the easiest part of it, they've begun to do, you know, the crackdown on the squeegee guys and stuff like that. That's not getting at the heart of the problem, which is to recognize that, you know, 85% of the, I'm talking about homeless men on the street, 85% of them are either drug or alcohol addicted, and that if you're just giving them money, I think you're, you're enabling them as the jargon goes and that something much more uh, intelligent and compassionate must be done to try to solve the problem. The, this piece, as you remember, was very long, and again, it's hard for me to, <laughs> it's almost like a whole separate night at the 92nd Street Y to discuss it, but uh, for the moment, nothing is being done, but I think the awareness in the city that something must be done is probably a lot higher now than it was five years ago. And we'll see what truly, whether they have the, the gumption to really do, truly do something about it. Yes, sir.
Well, a fellow had, had read my book and, and, and talked about how sad parts of it were because doors were closed and were opened an inch. And I don't know how the hell I got through with them. I'll tell you the truth. Part of it was, I'm sure, because my mother was a remarkable person. She, and is, she's 83 um, and lives in Brooklyn still. Um, she and my father, but certainly my mother, who had gone, who had finished high school, my father only went to the eighth grade, so, and his mother had signed his birth certificate with an X, so we didn't go back a long way among the gentry. <laughs> uh, but my mother uh, really had this exuberant sense of America, you know, and so did all of us at the end of the war. You know, there were, at the end of World War II, there was a sense of possibility in New York, a sense of optimism that I've never seen since. I mean, it, it, it might have been just this little parenthesis in New York history, but the whole long thing of the Depression and the war were finally over. Hitler had been beaten. We felt we could do anything, and that was infectious. I was 11, 12. You want to be president? Why not? You want to be you know, go to Harvard, why not? You wanted to be a cartoonist, anything was possible. Um, I don't sense that kind of optimism now among the kids who are young here now. Uh, for whatever reason, I think there's a variety of reasons. But I don't know whether it's missing either because I think there's a, there's a generation of immigrants in the city now. There's a million immigrants here, the largest number since the last immigrant wave. And I had come at the tail end. I was born in 1935, so the, that immigrant wave was over. We were reaping the benefits finally here. We finally had the first classes of young Jewish scholars going through City College. We had the walls were beginning to crack slightly at Columbia. There was a whole, the, the Irish were not just cops, they were going to law school. There were things happening that were that we weren't even aware of, but gave us, with a product, I think, of the optimism of that generation. This generation of immigrants um, hasn't reached that level yet. We don't have the first Korean-American novel. I think it'll be amazing when we read it. We don't have the, the, the Dominican version of the education of Hyman Kaplan. We don't have the Colombian James T. Farrell. We don't have these things yet. We'll, I think we're gonna have them soon. Stuyvesant High School is 50% Asian right now. I think something's coming that's gonna be, you know, quite amazing and, and, and I hope I live long enough to see it. I mean, <laughs> uh, but I think it's gonna come. So there might be that optimism under there because no matter what it is, it's better than Seoul. It's better than Santo Domingo. So that sense of optimism might be there and we just don't know it yet. Yes, sir. I don't know, I, I, it, it, it's so complicated now. I think one reason is that the system is just too big. There's a million kids in the, in the New York City public school system. That's enormous. Um, and we have a problem where a lot of school teachers feel somehow 
separated from them, uh, which mean, doesn't mean that you can't teach. I mean, the, the teachers I had I, were certainly separated from me, you know. What, what I find different from my experience, the experience of some of my friends, is the, is the lack of uh, a passion among the kids to learn anything. I, I saw a, a, a study a couple of years ago in which 70% of the black kids, high, black high school kids that were polled, thought that doing homework was being white. You know, I mean, it's like saying, I'm choosing to be stupid. I'm going to be true to my people by being a dumb son of a bitch. I never heard of anything like this. You know, when I used to pass the Brooklyn Public Library, there would be, outside, there was a big sign chiseled in the wall. It said, herein are enshrined the longings of great hearts. I said, holy Christ, I want to be a great heart. You know, <laughs> whatever the hell it is. You know, let me be a great heart. And the only way to be one was to walk into that building. And these kids don't do that. No, well, not enough of them. They're, they're obviously, there are some but not enough of them. They want to be the wrong thing. They want the wrong thing. They want sneakers, for Christ's sakes, $150 sneakers. I, keep, I, I said to Little Brown during the terrible winter, cold last week, I said, maybe we could try a Books for Guns program <laughs> and realize we'd probably get three guns. <laughs> you know. So, yeah. And, and they can't read because for, what, for a number of reasons. I think television is crucial to it. You know, the, the, in, in the black community now, television is being watched seven and three quarter hours a day, according to all the studies. Whites are, are not, by the way, sitting up watching McNeil Lehrer either, you know? Um, they're watching about six and a half hours a day. Uh, Nobody ever was entertained to that extent in the history of the world. You didn't, you know, nobody sat and watched Christopher Marlowe seven and a half hours a day, seven days a week in Elizabethan England. It didn't go that way. We didn't watch Shakespeare. They had a good guy writing. Um, so I think that is, has obviously affected us in some crucial ways in terms of the desire to read. And I think reading is much more tied up um, with thinking than watching is, because the decoding of symbols that goes on with the act of reading, I think, is crucial in a way to the way we think, the shorthand notions of thinking, as compared to simply experiencing. Television is more experiential in a way. Um, I would love to see some amazing project in the New York school system, I've talked about it here before, of teaching television the way we teach literature, to make kids hip to what's going on in that screen, to let them know what a soundtrack is when it's manipulating your emotions, what a commercial is really doing, how people make these things, to understand this isn't real, this is a manipulation, this is making you want the wrong things. Um, somehow we've never gotten around to that. Um, and there are, it's not my idea alone, people have been talking about it for a while now, the effect of 45 years now of television. But I think un unless some of those things are addressed, unless the effect of television is really, I noticed again uh, with Jesse Jackson, he was talking about turn off the television set and open a book. He's yelling, he's, he's lecturing families about this. Uh, I think there's a point at which that's going to have to become a great focus in the country, but it certainly isn't now. 
I've never seen a bigger bunch of idiots than, than ever, and, and I don't, I, I'm not somebody whose pity comes easily. I don't stand around and say, the poor guy, he's a victim of his environment. Um, but I've never seen idiocy chosen like this before, where you say, I want to be invincibly stupid so that I can go right to Rikers Island and hopefully end up in Attica. I never saw anything like this before in my life. You know, the guys I grew up with, the junior Persicos and so on, really thought they were wise guys and they were going to get away with doing a rug job at Aladdin Carpets or something. <laughs> and they ended up doing, you know, three to six somewhere. But, but at least they thought they were doing something and, and the jail should be avoided. These kids want to go to jail. They love it. They want to be there. It's, you know, you can, there's my friend Charlie. Hi, Harry. Let's go, by, you know. It's like going to Andover or something for someone. <laughs> so how we get around that and change that culture, change that, that desire for structure that jail provides and create something else is something I think everybody should be thinking about and that black intellectuals are now thinking very hard about. Yes, sir. The end of my book, the, the, the question, I'm trying to rephrase this question. The end of my, at the end of my book, I was involved with a fairly well-known actress at the, in the early 70s. And um, the question really was, why did I choose to end the book at that point? All I can tell you is that's the way the story ended, you know? I mean, I, I, I didn't stop it before that out of discretion or stop it there so that I could mention her name. I, 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 didn't, I didn't get into that uh, in much detail because it's, it's irrelevant to, to, to everything except the theme of the book, which is what was there and of value uh, from that in terms of the drinking part of it. And what I did get out of that uh, in, in terms of drinking was the example of her tremendous willpower, which I thought was admirable and think is admirable. Um, she was a very strong-minded person who knew that when certain things happened, if your career got in trouble because there were no scripts being written for women in their late 30s, then you did something else. You wrote a book or you went back and started dancing again, that, that things were doable, that you could change your life. It wasn't, you don't wait for you know, manna to fall from heaven. You go out and say, okay, that doesn't work. Uh, let's do this. And I think the example of that was, was what was the most valuable to me and I think is the most valuable in the example of her life. Yes, ma'am. I don't know. I, I, do I call myself an alcoholic? I, I certainly didn't at the time. I think... Probably, you know, looking at, you know, all these things later, I realize I probably was. But I don't walk around saying, hi, I'm Pete, I'm a recovering alcoholic. What I'd like to be is a recovering workaholic, you know, somehow. But, but I don't think of it that way. I think it's a category that's hard to sort of 
rigidly defined, you know? <laughs> I wish that were true. <laughs> I'm waiting for the cigarette that'll cure cholesterol, you know? Um, do I think I was an, an alcoholic? I, I, I don't know. Probably yes. Uh, do I wish that I could drink? No. I have absolutely no desire for it. And I wish I'd never started. I'd probably have seven or eight other books written now that I'll never write. I never will, literally. I won't write any book about the 60s because I can't, all I have is a highlight film. I don't know how the hell we got from the 20 to the 50. I don't, you know, how did that happen? Um, but I don't regret it. I, I, I think anybody, nobody should sit, you know, regretting their lives. I don't regret it. It's a fact, like having red hair or freckles or being short or something. You know, I mean, it's a fact. You can't change it. And I, th those were things that I blundered through. Uh, and part of the reason was there was nobody to show me the way. I mean, my, I was, my parents are both immigrants, so I was like the first American in the family. I had to sort of find out what, what the hell a signal, what, what was a bunt, you know? I had to discover all these odd American things. Uh, there was nobody in my neighborhood who had ever gone to, to college, and very few had ever fi finished high school, so I had to kind of blunder my way through that and blundered my way right into the newspaper business where I found out some other guys had blundered their way into it too, so that was a consolation. Um, so I, I think that sense of regret and remorse which can overcome some people, I don't have. And I, I think it's like the God thing, you know? I, I, I sometimes feel, God, I, I should be writing these novels like with all these strung out guys in the back of British dust jackets, you know, they all look like they came out of a methadone clinic or something. And it's all about how miserable the world is and how rotten it all was. And I think I was affected by that optimism after the war that stayed with me most of the time, which doesn't mean I can't see what's horrifying and evil in the world either. Yes, sir. That's a good question. I don't know. I, I, what, what piece of writing have I done that significantly changed me in the process of writing it? Um, I wrote a little book right after I stopped drinking called The Gift. It was a novella of about 90 or 100 pages. Um, and it was the first time I really had tried to deal with some of the issues that are in this book. And that is the issues of my father, you know, what it was like growing up there, my father, and so on. I, it was like a first draft in an odd way. And I remember the sweat pouring off me as I wrote it. <laughs> I had stopped drinking like three months earlier. And the intensity of that made me understand for the first time what the experience of writing fiction could be like, that you could lose yourself in this trance and come up out of the trance and not know where you'd been except in that book. Because newspapers, t you tend to write like you're double parked, you know? <laughs> uh, 
there's always somebody yelling from somewhere else in the room that you got three and a half minutes and one less inch, you know? But to go in to write fiction and to have lost myself in that uh, was amazing. I, uh, Dizzy Gillespie once said, though, that the professional is the guy that can do it twice. <laughs> so it, it changes somehow, you know, after that. But that first one really did change me. Yes, sir. What got me to the non-spiritual revelation, the factors that got me to stop drinking? Um, there were several things, and, and I go into it in some extent in the book, but um, part of it was physical. I had begun to lose. I, I began, my hands would shake on certain days. When I was typing, I would misspell easy words for some reason. I, I still don't know how that works. Um, uh, I was forgetting a lot of things. Uh, I could remember having a great time and not remember why. Uh, my kids were getting a little older and I didn't want to look like an idiot in front of my kids. Um, and the other part of it, the selfish part, was that I really wanted to write uh, better about certain things, that I was squeezing things out of my talent to, to satisfy the demands of a newspaper, but I was never going to write novels that way or write anything else of any consequence. So it was that, that part of it had a lot to do with it too. Um, in 73, the war in Vietnam was more or less over. Watergate was grinding towards its conclusion. And there was a sense that finally the 60s were over. I think they did and when Nixon got on that helicopter, just as they, they started in Dallas. But they were over, and the 60s were uniquely a time for journalism, I think. A lot of music was even a form of journalism. Bob Dylan, in a way, was a kind of a journalist. And it was time to go to some other level and see what I was capable of doing, and all those factors were all involved. All self-imposed, yeah. I tell the story of the end of it, you know, in the book in which I, I go to a place called Jimmy's on New Year's Eve, <clears throat> 72, 73, uh, and it was one of those places where you pay like $35 to have a good time and they're going to have live entertainment. And um, I was at the bar with a, a couple of people and in come like five gangsters with cigars and start going, hey, Tony, hey, why? you know, they start doing all that stuff. And then finally they announce, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Buddy Greco. And Buddy Greco came out and started singing a song called Lulu's Back in Town. And I sat there saying, I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> you know, I've only read Moby Dick once, you know. <laughs> and although I, I joke about it, and, and I've said on a couple of interviews that you can't, I don't, I don't mean to blame poor Buddy Greco or we could send him out to the street corners of America, you know, converting drunks, you know. Uh, it's, it's the old joke about Elliot Kastner movies, you know, how do you get people out of the streets and into the theaters? You show Elliot Kastner movies in the street, you know. <laughs> so, but there was that sense that, that you, the, the sense of waste that was accumulating as I grew older and, and realized I wasn't a kid anymore. I was 35, 36. 
I wish I were 35 now, but that, that if I were going to do something, I had to wait. I, I had to start. I couldn't wait. Uh, so I think the accumulation of all those factors were, were alive in me. I never hit bottom. I never ended up in the gutter. I never, it wasn't one of those. I, I think this thing that you've got to hit bottom before you can get up is nonsense. Uh, just as to say hitting bottom is the only form of alcoholism. I think the functioning alcoholic does a far more damage. So it was all those things, and it, that's why it's called a drinking life, though. It's only about mine. It's not used as an example or a preachment to anybody else's life. But I think what I encourage people who have asked me is examine your life. You know, where did it start? Where did it, what do you remember from the beginnings? Then you can maybe get into it and figure it out in a, in a, in a way which is, all, I think, going to be different for every individual. There's no charm. I hate these books that they sell in the self-help uh, sections of bookstores that make it sound easy. You know, that you just have to make the following checklist, you know. Um, it's, but it, it, although it's not easy, it's not so hard either, is what I hope this book urges people. Yes, sir? Um, somehow I think the good writers end up at a newspaper when the newspaper is in trouble, <laughs> you know? Um, they can't do it with troops. You, you, when I went to the Post, it was seventh of seven newspapers in circulation. Just ahead of it, I think, was the Herald Tribune. So if, if you can't do it with a lot of soldiers, if you're an editor, if you're a smart editor, you say, I'll never have, like the Times, you know, 100 guys on standby in case a ship goes down in the North Atlantic, you know, as the, the legend used to have it about the Times. I, I think what you choose to do is to do it with style. Paul Sand, uh, my editor, used to say, if you got the story, tell it. If you don't have the story, write it. <laughs> So a lot of us learned to write because we didn't, you know, you just didn't have the, the, the soldiers. We, turned, we used to turn out the New York Post first edition with about five people. It was amazing. It was, and it was the greatest, for a young uh, newspaper man, it was, a, it was the greatest training ground you could have. You didn't get stuck in school sports for five years, you know, with, you know, people yelling, give the kid a break, you know. It, it was, you did everything. You started out, you wrote a murder from 12 to 3, and then you wrote a fire, and then you wrote captions, and then some guy died in, in Australia, had to write something, and you just did it all. It was flying fingers all the time. And uh, I think it was great training that way. And so the people that came out of there, like Nora Efron and Aronowitz and all that, of that generation, uh, and the Herald Tribune. Then I think later there was a Rolling Stone generation of writers, of guys like uh, um, uh, Timothy, Kra uh, Timothy Krause and Hunter Thompson, obviously, and Tim Cahill and a lot of guys there, real good talent. But I think, again, all these things happen totally by accident. They could have, it usually is not, you're not going to end up with a great writing generation at a yachting magazine, obviously, but there's some weird cyclical thing that goes on that attracts people. You get somebody good, you get some, somebody he brings his 
cousin Charlie, and next thing you know, everybody wants to write there. And I was lucky that I went to a place that was just a marvelous place to be. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy and I were friends. Uh, do I think much about him in the 25 years? Not much anymore. I have to be truthful. I don't think much about him. I, I, I liked him very much. I made a terrible mistake by becoming his friend. I don't think newspaper men should be friends with politicians. I, and I haven't been a friend of a politician since June 1968. Uh, but I cherished the fact that I knew him and that he was here and that he started to do what I thought he could have done. I think it was a great hole blown through the country when he got killed. Um, but that, that's based on sort of sentiment and, and memory rather than on anything factual. We just, we'll never know. It's one of those things we'll never know. Uh, because I have that sort of sense that you can't look back too much we, we can't sit here and say we can't do anything because they killed Martin Luther King and they killed Malcolm X and they killed Robert Kennedy and they killed Jack Kennedy and uh, those things happened. It was a period in, in, in which the vehemence of American life combined with the gun to destroy people and to destroy hope in a lot of people. I hope we never have to do that again. I hope it never happens to us again. I'd like to, you know, I wish we had like the record of Mexico where people don't have primaries at the, with a pistol blowing a hole through your head. Um, uh, but I think we'll, we, we did go through it and we should acknowledge it and learn from it. We don't tend to learn much in this country. To think of all those people being shot to death and we just got the Brady Bill a couple of months ago is just insane. And there's now what? a hundred million more guns in the country since all those deaths. Um, but I was glad I was there and I, I was glad I got to know them. I was glad I sat in the room with them. Yes, sir. Uh, the feeling about drugs and would I favor legalization. I, I'm in favor of legalization of some drugs. Yeah, I think marijuana should be legal. I think if people can go around getting blasted out on Gilby's gin, why not, you know, smoke a joint too? Um, and I, th I do think that, that prohibition ends up creating the opposite of what it's supposed to do. I was much more in favor of, pro of, of uh, legalization until the, uh, the dawn of crack cocaine. And I think the nature of crack cocaine and what it does to people, the creation of instant addicts and all that, I don't know if that ought to be for sale at the AMP, you know? Uh, and yet I don't know what to do about it. The, the big question obviously should be why do so many millions and millions of Americans uh, need to be stupefied to get through a day? That, that's what we're dealing with. It's not like, I remember interviewing a Mexican, um, a diplomat at one point about six or seven years ago about the Mexican part of the drug trade, he said, listen, if yuppies began shoving bananas up their noses and would spend $4 a banana, Mexico would bloom with bananas. So it really is our problem. It's, it's, it's not supply, it's demand.
And uh, why that is, what's wrong with this country in that way between drugs and guns, um, you know, smarter men than me are going to have to figure that out. I have theories about it, but I just, it's the most appalling combination of things that we have. Dr the dr guns and drugs thing are just wrecking the country, wrecking cities. Look at it, look at here. I mean, I, I, when I was writing this book, I looked up statistics for the 50s to make sure I just wasn't seeing it through some sentimental gauze. And uh, in 1955, there were 300 murders. Last year, there were 2,000. In 1955, there were 150,000 people on welfare. We now have 1,200,000. Two San Francisco's on welfare. So in, in 1955, they confiscated 93 ounces of cocaine in the entire city of New York. There's probably 93 ounces on Lexington Avenue right now. So this sense that this was once a great big wonderful town and that something has gone drastically wrong is I think not just empty nostalgia or sentimentality, it's, a, it's verifiable. But it's not isolated in New York, it's every city in America. I think almost every city. I, I think we're in better shape than LA right now, for example. You look at what's happened in Los Angeles in the last three years, even Job wouldn't take the job as a, Mayor of Los Angeles, for God's sakes. Floods, earthquakes, uh, you know, riots, uh, famine, whatever is going on now. Uh, I think we've done better than that because it took us 30 years to get to this shape. But, but no matter whether you're in LA or New York, the drugs and guns are there, part of American life, and the rest of the world wonders what's wrong with us. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, I'll see you a little later. Thank you.